Hello and welcome to the Fan Team Focus podcast. And today I'm joined by a very special guest. Those that have been reading on the site for a while um, will recognise his name, and that is FPL Raptor. Um, quite a big name in the fan in the FPL area. He's also going to be doing some videos for one of the FPL sites, which I'm sure he'll tell us about in a minute. And uh, and of course he's written a book. And if you haven't been on his Twitter, then get on there and order yourself a copy. I've done it. I'm about halfway through, and it's a brilliant read. Um, so before we jump into uh, meeting FPL Raptor, I just want to put a little reminder out there that um, obviously the million pound game kicks off this Friday. We have a leaderboard with two thousand pounds in prize money, with a thousand pounds up top. Um, we're going to be running that throughout the whole of the season. All you need to to get in there is just refer one friend. Once you've done that, just ping us an email. We'll sort the tickets out and you'll be in that's it simple as that so without further ado hello fpl raptor how are you oh yeah yep i'm really good thanks thanks for inviting me on i've been playing fan team for about 18 months now and i love love the site play it quite regularly so it's good to be able to chat about it which i don't get the opportunity to do very often but you just write about it instead yeah, exactly. Been been writing obviously for Fan Team Focus uh, last season. Really enjoyed doing that. I think there are obviously lots of similarities with FPL, but there are also some differences and some things that I like about Fan Team that FPL don't have. And so it's definitely nice to play them alongside each other. And obviously, the the monetary side of things is fantastic as well. The opportunity to to win some money when you make good decisions. So yeah, excellent. So if we sort of look back a bit to your background, then how long have you been playing FPL? So I've been playing FPL for about three or four years now. So not a long time. I'm, I'm only 24 and I probably started when I was about 20, 20 years old. And yeah, I've been playing for about three or four years. Project Restart was when I really started getting into FPL, which is when I entered the, the Twitter scene as well. And then, yeah, shortly after shortly after Project Restart, I also got involved in Fan Team as well. Um, it was through FPL Graphics. Where I was just chatting to him one day. He was telling me about Fan Team. And he said, oh, there's a season long, season long game. You can, you can win lots and lots of money if you enter. And I was like, why not? So I only entered two teams and I played it all season and I absolutely loved it. Um, then played the Euro game. And obviously I'm now back again for, for a second full season. Nice. How did you get on last season? Because a lot of the time, I know for me personally, I only joined a couple of months before the end of the season. So for me, I didn't get involved in obviously the season long one. And I learned a lot during the Euros one. Do you think there's a lot of lessons you've learned from that first one that you can sort of take through? Or how did you yeah. do first? Yeah, so absolutely. So I think I finished one and was about 1,000. I think about 1,000. I was just outside the top 1K in one. And then the other one was sort of like 8 or 9K. So I think I... I got my money back well and truly uh, and a little bit of a profit. And I decided that... I saw early on that my team wasn't doing as well as it was. I, and I kind of missed a couple of deadlines. And I thought, you know what? As you said, I'm going to try and treat this as a learning experience. I'm going to try and learn the ins and outs of the games, look at which players work well, try and consume some content and work out how I can then take that through to next season. And from this season, I'll play a little bit more seriously and and try and get in those sort of like top 100, top 50 spots where you can earn some really good money. Exactly. And I'm, you're not a high volume player, are you? As you said, you're, only, you're still relatively new to it. So I'm assuming that you're not going to be like whacking 100 entries in the season. Yeah, no. So um, during the, the Euros, I did enter 20 teams and I made five or six hundred pound profit which was really nice so good. that that was quite high volume but the reason i did that is because i wasn't playing fpl obviously at the same time and I, it was quite a short tournament but i found that quite draining and time consuming to change that many teams so i'm gonna only be entering three teams 
in the season long game, which is obviously still a little bit of maintenance. What I would suggest for people that want to enter multiple teams and they don't have the time is just to enter the same team three or four times. I think that's really useful to do. So when you enter a team, you can enter it multiple times. So you're still only maintaining three or four teams, but you can still have 20, 30 entries. So I think if I was to do mass entries, I'd probably do it that way rather than because in the Euros, I had 20 different teams and it was really difficult to try and maintain that. I had 50 different teams. Honestly, yeah, well, by yeah, the end of the Euros, I was fried. It literally took me yeah. a day to do the changes, especially once Ericsson obviously had his, you know, problems. I had him in, I think, 90% of my teams. And yeah. I literally, it was just a nightmare from then on inwards. But uh, I did okay, actually. I didn't make a massive loss, which I thought I was going to after that first game week. But uh, yeah. it was so labour intensive that I wouldn't do that again. I, would, I, I So far, I think I've got 18 teams and I haven't decided whether I'm going to do three or two well i'll probably do three so i've got six different lineups and then as we go forward i can sort of vary you know like we get when we get later in the season i can make sort of different choices when they're quite close choices to make but yeah um, exactly yeah but yeah that's quite interesting so a little little bit more about you how how have you done in fpl because a lot of the guests we've had on here have had some quite good finishes have you ever had any uh yeah, so I only obviously started playing properly Project Restart. So my best finish was last season and it was 120k. So not particularly great, but I'm looking to learn, trying to draw on the experience that I've had. And yeah, I'm looking to have hopefully a good season in FPOM fancying this year. Well, that's still better than men. I've been playing it about 10 years. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think after reading your book or the, the parts that I have read so far, the amount of decisions that I know I make. And the trouble is, even before reading your book, I knew I was making those things, but now I realise why I'm making those errors. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Actually, what we've we'll gone on to that, let's talk about your book. Um, so you released a book called The Mind Game. Uh, it came out, I think, what, a few weeks ago? Four yeah, 20th ago, of July. So yeah, three or four weeks. And for someone that's not really been playing FPL or been in that sort of arena for you know for a long time so many of the yep. people we speak to have been you know playing it for 10 years since they were kids um did you have any sort of trepidation about sort of leaping into that area i know it's primarily about the stats and relating it to fan team but yep. what do you think yeah so when i first joined the community i just put out a couple of threads on twitter about psychology and how it applies to fantasy football it's about fpl but it also applies to fan team as well it's just about general decision making and they were received really well it resulted in a kind of a few thousand followers in a few weeks i then started writing articles on the psychological aspects of fpl and people really really enjoyed it and i realized quite quickly that despite not having a vast amount of experience in fpl i already knew the game quite well i knew all the rules i knew all the decisions that were required to be made and I could apply psychology quite easily. And people kept asking me different questions, DMing me, asking me for all these opinions. And I was linking different articles and threads all over the place and answering lots of DMs. And I thought it would be great for myself to have written a book, but also for other people. If they say, I've got a question about psychology, I can just point them in the direction of this book and it can answer all of their questions, hopefully. And so that's when I started writing it. And obviously, the more experience I got from FPL I could learn about the game and I could apply more psychology to it. And yeah, that was the process over the last 12 to 14 months. I've been writing that book, um, getting opinions from other people. So it's pretty comprehensive. And whilst not having a vast amount of experience myself, the focus is on applying psychology to fantasy football. So I'm not telling you how to make your own decisions in FPL and fantasy football. I'm trying to say, here's the tools you need to make your own decisions. Um, so yeah, it was a really exciting, interesting experience. It took a long time, but I'm really happy with the end product. 
How has it been received so far? I mean, every t- every time I tweet about it, you know, people sort of, you know, seem to ask me questions about it and stuff like that. But there seems to be a lot of sort of from the people I spoke to, a lot of interest in that sort of area of the game. Yeah, it's done really well. Um, better than the publishers thought, which is always good. You don't want to disappoint your publishers. So they're really happy with it. I'm really happy with it as well. Lots of positive feedback. And at the end of the day, it's quite a niche market, FPL. And then when you apply psychology to FPL, it's even more niche. So this was never going to be a life-changing thing for me, but I always wanted to write a book and just to receive some lovely comments, people posting on Twitter saying, I've got your book. It's always a surreal feeling to have spent 12 months writing a book and then have people having it in their hands, reading it. So I'm delighted. Even if I didn't get make many sales and no one said anything nice, it's just a great achievement for myself to, to write a book because I've always wanted to do it. Yeah, no, it's an incredible achievement. I can't remember, somebody said that everybody's got one book in them or something like that. But, uh, you know, I'd like to think that I've got a story to tell, but it's just the, the application which impresses me of being actually sitting down and, you know, not not just writing a, a fiction book, but writing a book where you've had to sort of collect so much information from different sources. You're a PhD student, aren't you? So did that help in terms of sort of dragging in the information and looking at the, you know, the sources of information and the statistical models that you'd use and stuff? Yeah, definitely. So um, pulling on, I mean, a lot of the the psychology and the research that I discuss is from my bachelor's and my master's degree. So I, I use a lot of the theories that I'd already learned and I know how to find out this information. So a lot of the concepts aren't that difficult to understand, but for a lay person, for someone that's not involved in academia, trying to find out what they mean because they're written in their original form in quite a complicated way. So my job is to read all of these complicated articles and books in my spare time and then try and simplify that for the average reader. And it's nothing to do with intelligence. It's to do with accessibility. There's a lot of intelligent people out there, but they don't know how to access this psychological information mm. and then apply it to FPL. So yeah, the, the writing process, I find it really easy to write. So the, the writing process wasn't the difficult thing. The thing that took a lot of time, as you said, was pulling on all these different sources, doing the research. And then once I've read all that research, then trying to portray it in a way that makes sense with respect to fancy football. And also in a way that I'm not giving my opinion too much. I didn't want to give my opinion too much about the book because that's very, that's useless. I wanted to present as much objective information as I can and say, do with that what you want. Um, and in that way, I'm allowing people to make their own decisions rather mm. than just trying to form uh, the the perfect manager in my mind well when you win the fpl or the fancy million this season you can write another book and then people will be far more interested in your opinion yep, than exactly else. exactly but uh yeah it's brilliant and as i said it's called the mind game uh you can get it on amazon um and i'll put a link link in the description of the podcast uh let's let's move on so obviously a lot of the information or i became familiar with you uh through fpl graphics and he mentioned that you were, you know, really good on the stats side and some of the content you produced uh, back end of last season when we launched is absolutely brilliant. It was, you know, probably my favourite stuff to read on the site. Sorry to all the other writers. Um, but, it, you know, it's absolutely brilliant. So where did you get that sort of stats background? Is that something you've always, you know, is that something from your education background or is that just something you've found as an interest going forward? Yes, I've always been relatively adept at, mathematics but obviously you don't really need to have a particularly advanced knowledge of mathematics to use stats in fantasy football but uh, during my psychology degree if anyone studied psychology a lot of it is stats based you have to do statistical tests to find out if there's significant results so I've got quite an advanced understanding of statistics but I'd never applied that to to sport and and to football and also to fantasy football so I started getting interested in underlying statistics because it's very 
it can be useless at points to just use goals and assists and how many points a player scored in the past to try and predict their future performances because there can be overperformance, there can be underperformance. There's a lot of variance and regression to the mean. So there are lots of interesting concepts. So underlying statistics are really useful because they show what the base performance was actually like and what the person was expected to do. So I really started getting into expected stats. I read up a lot on it. I was looking at the different models that you can use, different websites. You've got FB Ref. Opta stats, mm. fancy football fix. So there's lots of different ways you can look at the stats. And so I've just been in my spare time, just been trying to get a, a really good grasp of the statistics. And, I, and I'm by no means at the level of the analytics guys, but I've got another, I've got a basic enough level now that I can use statistics to my advantage in FPL. And towards the back end of the season, I was starting to make some much better decisions that were backed from, from the underlying statistics. And that's what I did in the fan team Euros game. I was using a lot of underlying statistics mm. from their previous seasons, which allowed, allowed me to start quite well in that. And I finished quite well as well. Um, and it was, it was a lot of underlying statistics at, in combination with the eye test, of course. Yeah, I think that the, um, the eye test is something that obviously a lot of football fans have, but obviously that can also be a little bit misleading. So when you overlay that with the stats to sort of back up your decisions, you know, it's a confirmation, I guess, isn't it? That, uh, you know, you can yeah. see he's good, but is he good? And you look at the stats and yes, he is good. But uh, wait, so you said, you've mentioned some of the sources you get it from. Um, is it F, FBref? Is that the one? Yeah. I, that's the one I use most of the time. Um, is there any other sites you think are particularly good at sort of offering sort of data? So um, FBref offer a wide range of stats across different leagues and different players. So if I'm trying to collect data from specifically for the Euros across like the German French league, if you're looking for underlying statistics across several leagues, I really like FBref. For the Premier League stuff, I use Fantasy Football Fix. Um, I just think they've got the same level of underlying statistics, but they've also got really nice stuff uh, for heat maps and player comparisons. And they've got a really, 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 really nice metric, which is called expected FPL points. And you can actually apply that quite closely to fan team. You've just got to be careful of things like bonus. And obviously they don't have the additional appearance points and mm -hmm. shots on target, but you can get a very good, that single metric takes into account chances created, clean sheets, appearance points. It takes into account absolutely everything in fantasy football and puts it into a single metric. Um, so I really like that. So I use fantasy football fix mainly for, for fan team and for, for FPL. Yeah, cool. I'll go and check them out. Yeah. But, um, so a lot of the data that you've used in articles that you've written for us and in other stuff I've noticed you're sort of tweeting about is um, XG, obviously XA as well. How do you feel about those stats as sort of individual stats? Because I, whilst I think they hold a lot of value and a lot, you know, they're very useful, I think they can often be quite misleading and people will take them as gospel. Yep, I agree. I think they need to be used with common sense and they need to be used in combination with other other sources so whether it's eye test whether it's different statistic using different websites there's a cognitive bias which is discussed in the book known as the law of instrument which is an over reliance on a specific tool and there's a quote from einstein which says if you treat everything um as a nail or treat every, use everything as like a hammer then everything's like a nail he's essentially saying that if you you treat everything as the same then you're always going to have the same outcome and it's a really nice point that if we just only use expected data and we don't use the eye test, or we only use big chances created to look at creativity, then you're getting only part of the picture. Yeah. So I think expected stats are by far and away the most useful underlying statistics to use. If I was to only use a, two underlying statistics, it would probably be expected goals and expected assists. 
I just think that because they encompass things like chances created mm. and difficulty of the chance and especially if you're using per 90 stats, it also mitigates playing time. So they are very, very useful stats. But as you say, they only paint part of the picture. For example, if De Bruyne pings a 50-yard pass onto Sterling's foot from five yards out, it's a perfect pass, but Sterling misses the ball. That won't count as a big chance created. That won't come up in the expected assist stats because Sterling hasn't made contact with the football. So if you're watching the game, there the eye test has really benefited. So if you're just looking at the stats, you would, you'd say, oh, De Bruyne has not had a very good game. He's not been very creative. However, the eye test supports that. So I like to use it in unison with the eye test and some other statistics, but I'm a big fan of them because it, generally speaking, it takes the bias out of your decision-making. So if you're watching a player and you think, oh, they haven't got many good opportunities, but you look at the stats after the game, perhaps mm. they have, and perhaps you've just missed those opportunities. Mm. Um, so yeah, I'm a big fan of them personally. And in terms of, I guess one of my sort of small issues with it is how game flow factors into those sort of decisions. So for instance, if you're playing a team and, you know, you score early and they spend the the other 90 minutes coming at you and create loads of chances, but you are still the most dominant team on the pitch. It looks like the XG for the team that lost could have been, you know, 2.7, whereas yours is 0.9. And I find it sort of quite difficult to get my head around those sort of things, but, um, yeah, exactly. But as you said, if you if you're watching the game and you see that, you can take those statistics with a pinch of salt. And of I course, think that, yeah. I, 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 I think, mean, in yeah. games that you're not watching. Oh, exactly. And and yeah. So perhaps at that point, you need to try and watch highlights or get others' opinions. So that's why I try and watch as much football as I can because yeah, it helps agreed. support the data. And the other thing I would just say at this point is be very very careful with sample sizes and and your game week range that you're looking at. So XG and XA are very useful. But if you go from five game weeks to six game weeks, if in that sixth game week a player had four one-on-ones that's yeah. going to completely skew the days compared to five game weeks so try not to like cherry pick your sample size i see a lot of people do that to try and make a point they'll they'll keep changing the sample size the game week range until they get the game week range where the player that they want is top of the list and they'll yeah. go right that's the game week range i'm going to use so try and stay consistent use whatever game week range you want to use but don't change that depending on whether you want a player or whether you don't want that player yeah completely agree and in terms of stats that you think can be misleading or stats maybe that are a little bit overused by the community i think trying to just use single stats in isolation such as big chances created um or key passes i just think if you're going to use single metrics like that try and use expected assist and expected goals because that takes into account everything into one metric so unless you're using all those individual stats together but just picking up one and just saying, yeah, Shaw's got the biggest, most big chances created, therefore he's the best fullback. If he's expected assist are significantly lower and his key pass is significantly lower, then big chances created might not be as important. So it's just trying to not use these really random individual stats, like most headed opportunities on goal. Try and use either a broader stat or metric which incorporates more things or try and use several of those. Um, but there aren't any that I see particularly that I think are really useless. I think they're all useful for their own reason. Just try and think how does that convert into FPL or into, into fan team? So if you're using a specific stat, is it useful? So shots on target, of course, is going to be very, very useful this year for fan team. Um, whereas shots on target wouldn't be very useful at all for FPL. So think about the game that you're playing, the format you're playing and how those underlying statistics can benefit that. Cool. And you haven't gone quite as far as to build your own model then yet? Oh, no, no. So so this is what I'm saying. I've got a very good grasp of statistics, 
at a basic level and enough to use other models. But uh, yeah, I'm not going to probably be creating my own model anytime soon. But there are some analytics guys on Twitter that have started creating their own models that look quite good. Um, it's just a matter of testing those over a season or two before you can start applying them. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, I know, um, especially in the States, a lot of the high volume players that play on sites like DraftKings, for instance, you know, have their model and they've built, you know, something like uh, something that literally they'll plug in the players and it will plug out their lineups for them. And you yeah. know, that's all they do. And if they keep tweaking that, then, you know, potentially you should be able to make money. But uh, yeah. in theory, but uh, I guess we'll never know exactly how well those guys do. But let's get yeah. on to the actual millie this year. So the fan team million, we've had the prices now for quite a while. Obviously, we're only a few days out from the start of the season. With the, when you first looked through the figures, were there any players that sort of immediately stood out to ask everybody that question? You know, there's a few obvious ones, I think, but is there anyone that's, you know, that you thought straight away they look pretty good value? Yeah, so I've made a, a list of five players where I was looking at the prices and I went, oh, that really interests me. And I think in general, fan team, I would say they've nailed the pricing, but I, I I find it really, really easy to build a strong team with a strong bench. So I don't know whether that means they've nailed the pricing or they've probably underpriced a few players, but I find it in comparison to the likes of FPL, I find it significantly easier to build a really strong team. So the five players that I've noted that, uh, I don't know if they're underpriced, but they're very good value are Ivan Tony at 6 million. Mm. I think he's potentially slightly underpriced at six. I think if he was six, five, that's still interesting. Seven is probably still interesting, but six is almost a dead cert in my team. Um, I've got Sadio Mane at 10 million. I think that is probably the price he should come in, but it starts to create a question of whether you go for him over the likes of Bruno and Salah, or if you go for him with Bruno and Salah, but 10 million is very interesting for me. Uh, Mara's at eight, 8.5 million. I think it's a really interesting price, especially considering he looks like he's almost definitely going to start game week one and potentially game week two with all the injuries they've got and the rumours that Jesus and Bernardo Silva want to leave. And yeah, Foden, KDB injured. I just think that Mara's looks fairly nailed for those first few. Um, Havertz at 8 million, again, looks fairly nailed in that team, at least for game week one, because there's a lot of players returning late from the Euros. And that game against Crystal Palace, if you want an outside captaincy, I, I do like the look of Havertz. And then the recently transferred Willock, I think is at 5.5 million. It's just an absolute bargain. The, the statistics, underlying statistics and the way he actually executed those to the back end of the season were absolutely phenomenal. I think he scored in like seven or eight games in a row towards the back yeah, end of the it was season. Ridiculous. Is that so, definitely confirmed now? Yeah, it's confirmed. I don't know if they've like officially announced it, but we've had all the official medicals taking place. So um, at the time when you're listening to this, guys, it might already be confirmed. But uh, Willock's already at Newcastle on the fan team website. So um, he looks, yeah, looks like he's going to make this transfer. But at 5.5 million, when you look at the likes of Saar and Ben Rama at 6 million, I think I'd be tempted to just pay 0.5 less and go for Willock. Um, so at the moment, out of those five players, I've currently got Tony and Willock in my team as like my budget enablers, but I am very keen to try and get Maris in there at 8.5. It's just a matter of finding that extra one or two million on top of the players I've already got. It is quite interesting because I think you, you said a second ago that you thought the pricing when you looked at it was sort of spot on. And I thought exactly the same. I thought there was value on there, but I've done several teams now and I often end up with like, five million six million left over which yep. obviously isn't a bad thing um but i think there's a lot of decent budget options and often i will try and put mana in as well because i think that 
you know, I think that he underperformed last season compared to yep. previous seasons, and there's no reason why he can't be on a level pegging with Salah. And so yep. for that extra two and a half million, you know, and often I'm finding myself putting Salah in over Mane at the end just because of the money I've got left over. But uh, I think I think the budget options as well allow something in FP that isn't probably possible in FPL, which is a three premium draft. And so I've got three entries at the moment. I'm playing around with that in one of my entries is the possibility to go Kane, Salah, Bruno, or either Salah, Bruno, Mane, or Salah, Bruno, and KDB. I think there's certainly an option, or even Lukaku or Son. There's definitely an option to go three premiums, potentially even four if you're going for sort of like the mid-lower priced premiums. And I think that might be a really nice option. That just Mm -hmm. gives you more flexibility because at some point this season, potentially early on, there will be three, four, five premiums that all start firing. And if you've only got one premium in your draft or one premium and a mid-price, low-price premium, it doesn't allow that flexibility to jump on and off different premiums. So I'll have at least Bruno and Salah in most of my drafts. And then I think in one or two of them, I might potentially go for a third premium just to allow that flexibility. Yeah. And you you, just before we started recording, you sent a a quick draft over that you'd just done. So should we have a quick look at that? Because I assumed from it that you were a Liverpool supporter, but... uh, you're not. You're a Man United supporter. Um, you had three Liverpool guys in there. Do you want to read through the lineup that you quickly put together? Yes, no worries. So it, I'm starting in a 3-4-3. I've got 500.5 mil in the bank. I just think that's nice to catch those price changes in fan team as well. They're, they're slightly less predictable. So you can sometimes struggle if there's going to be early price changes. 0.1 million is actually more like 0.5 million early on because if you miss one price change, then you're priced out of making a direct switch. So mm. I do like to leave at least 0.5 in the bank. So the current draft is Sanchez in goal, Trent, Veltman and Soufal in defence. So double Brighton defence. I just think at 4.5 million both from they're really nice options and Brighton have great fixtures. In midfield, I've got Salah, Diogo Jota, Bruno Fernandes and Ben Rama. And up front, I've got Ings, Antonio and Tony. And then on my bench, I've got Willock, Cody and Luke Ayling. So a, a really strong bench with three playing options, but also quite cheap. Willock could quite easily come into the starting 11 for Ben Rama or Tony or vice versa. So I've got sort of like three budget attacking options that can rotate. And I've got Cody and Luke Ayling on the bench to rotate with Veltman and Sofal. So I've looked ahead. The, the team does rotate quite well. There are lots of options. You've got two premiums. Jota, Ings and Antonio at that mid-price. So the team's got really nice flexibility. Um, The only thing I would say about the likes of Jota and Ben Rama are they're unlikely to play 90 minutes. And obviously in fan team, you get the extra point for that for the attackers. Mm. So um, I don't particularly like that about them, but I think both of them are quite explosive and have potential upside. And if they're not going to play 90 minutes, but they get two goals in 60 minutes, then I'm not going to really be too bothered about that. So um, I would advise trying to look for those nailed players in fan team because that extra point, I mean, Josh, the winner from last year, is is very keen on those nailed players for that reason because you Mm -hmm. can earn, if they play 90 minutes across 38 game weeks, that's an extra 38 points on top of someone that doesn't. So I think it is good to try and pick those nailed players, but I think for a few of the options, you can go for the more explosive rotation risks. And a couple of questions regarding the draft then. So Sanchez, um, he's incredibly popular and for good reason. He's great value. Um, the underlying stats for Brighton last season show that they can, you know, underperformed. And so, you know, perhaps we'd expect sort of a return to base or perhaps even exceed expectations this season. You know, they're within the realms of possibility. Um, what do you think the ownership's going to be like on him? 
Yeah, good question. I'm not... (laughs) I'm not set on Sanchez and I'm actually not too keen on him in FPL. So I don't know why I've got him in this draft particularly, but with Sanchez, so Brighton had the the third best expected goals conceded and the third best expected clean sheets in the in the Premier League last season. So by all accounts, the underlying statistics suggest they had the third best defence after Man City and Chelsea. Mm. So they had a really strong defence last year. They did lose Ben White, obviously, but I don't expect that to affect them too much. Feltman will probably drop into centre-back. Um, the thing I don't like about Sanchez is that he didn't make many saves last year. So he actually finished 23rd in the Premier League for saves per 90. Mm. So whilst Brighton are a really strong defence, they make a lot of blocks and they don't allow the opposition to get too many shots off, which means Sanchez is more likely to score those six points than the sort of 9, 10, 11 points that Martinez did last yeah. season. So that's the only reason that I wouldn't like Sanchez, but I do fully expect Brighton to keep three, potentially four clean sheets in those first six or seven fixtures. It's just whether you want to try and go for someone that keeps more, will make more saves. I'd probably expect him to come in at around 20 or 30% ownership. Um, but I do think there are other good 4.5 million options. Backman's probably my first or second choice alongside Sanchez, just because Watford have a really strong defense. They've got really nice fixtures and Backman would tend to make more saves than Sanchez. So you've got the opportunity to get those extra points for the saves. Yeah. And in terms of, it's quite interesting that you didn't mention it before, but your uh, reserve keeper is, I think his first name is Jason, Jason Steele of Brighton. So basically you've gone for the handcuff to Sanchez, uh, yep. handcuff meaning the the player that will potentially replace them if they if he gets injured. That's quite interesting because personally in the past, and I don't know whether it's just been a complete error, I've always chosen two playing goalkeepers that I could potentially rotate um i noticed reading your book that you advised against that as well in the book um it's it's quite interesting is that something you're going to be following across all of your teams yeah i never rotate keepers and my main reason for not rotating key i don't don't have an issue with it and people have done it successfully in the past is that often with goalkeepers they get clean sheets when you don't expect it is the first thing i'll say sometimes they'll get a clean sheet against the team where you would never want to play them and they'll concede three goals against a really easy team so it's very difficult to guess when your keeper is going to get clean sheets and uh, the other reason is the times when your keeper is going to get a lot of points a clean sheet plus six seven eight saves are going to be those tougher games so i almost want to play my keepers in the tough games because that's when they're going to get those big hauls So it just, I just don't need the the mental stress of trying to predict <laughs> when my when my team when my goalkeepers are going to play well and when they're going to keep a clean sheet. And I just think that 0.5 million that you could get would probably be best used elsewhere, and you could use that mental mental capacity to to make other decisions throughout the week. Excellent. Yeah, no, I think it's a really good idea, and definitely something that I'm going to be looking to do. I hadn't decided whether to go with a handcuff or go with um, just a, a real budget option, but. Um, it definitely would save you some stress. Um, in terms of the other part here, you've gone with two triple stacks, I think. Uh, obviously, the Liverpool one, which we've already spoken about, and then New, uh, sorry, then West Ham. Um, West Ham, back end of last season, obviously, they were playing really well. Do, do, are you confident that they could, they could keep up that form? I know this is a little bit of subjective rather than sort of objective yeah. uh, thing, but... Yeah, I mean, Antonio and Sofal are brilliant options in their own right. And whilst that is a stack, they're obviously a defender and attacker. So I'm not too fussed about that. I think West Ham will continue to be sturdy in defence. Doesn't look like they're going to sell Declan Rice. They've got all their defenders back now fit. I don't see any reason. They've signed Ariola as well. So I don't see any reason why they won't continue to be a really strong defence. They're not changing their system, so they should be fine. Um, 
Antonio, obviously talismanic, could potentially be on penalties. He has, if you believe in underlying statistics, he has the best underlying statistics in the league for, for strikers outside of Kane. So if you're not going to go for Kane, considering the, the second best striker in the league for statistics is 7.5 million with good fixtures. I, I've got Antonio in every fantasy football draft on any platform that I've done so far. And I think I'd probably have him even if he was eight or 8.5 million. So he's, mm. he's a no-brainer for me, Antonio. Ben Rahm is just one of those punts that that could be anyone by the time Friday deadline spins around. I'm not set on Ben Rama specifically. What I'm looking for there is an explosive player that might have quite low ownership that might be able to get me a few hauls early on. So Ben Rama... Um, Ismail Assar are two players that I'm really interested in. Ismail Assar in particular, because if Troy Deeney's not on the pitch, he'll probably be on penalties. Yeah. Um, but yeah, with, with respect to the West Ham triple up, I'm not particularly set on it, but I do like Sofal at 5 million. I think he's really, really good value. Antonio is just a fantastic striker. And that third spot could could be anyone at that price. I'm just looking for that little budget gem. Obviously, I've got Willock on the bench, so I could even downgrade Ben Rama to a 4.5 million pound midfielder put Willock into the starting 11 and then use the funds to upgrade Jota or Tony or someone like that. Yeah. There are a few different options there, but yeah, I do think West Ham will continue to perform quite well, probably not as well as last season, but they will probably do quite well in my opinion. And in terms of Dan Danny Ings, so Danny Ings at Southampton, would you have had him in? Um, no, no, because I think Southampton are going to get relegated this season, whether they kept Danny Ings or not. I just think their team looks terrible. I, I, yeah, think, I, agree. Ralph, I think Ralph Hasenhut was going to really struggle this season. He looks like he's lost the dressing room a little bit. Um, so no, I wasn't keen on that at all. But Villa have really strengthened their squad. They look good. I think Dean Smith's doing doing really well with Villa. So I like I like him as an option. If El Ghazi's not on the pitch, he looks like he'll be on penalties, which is also another real benefit. And I think Danny Ings on his day uh, could outscore anyone. And he's a really clinical finisher. And I, lo I like him alongside Antonio. I've got Ings and Antonio in my fantasy Premier League draft as well. And I think they're two really nice options. And how does Ings' price comparison? I haven't got it in front of me. Sorry, I've got so yeah, he's, he's, he's the same price in FPL and fan team. And is that that's the same price, or is it a little bit more than Ollie Watkins? I can't point, point 0.5 more than Ollie Watkins. So Ollie Watkins is 7.5 and Ings is 8. So you're essentially paying 0.5 million more, but there's a potential that Ings, uh, Watkins is pushed out onto the left wing. And even if he's not pushed out into the left wing and they play a 4-4-2, I still think Ings is the better option because he's, he's greedier, he's more clinical, and he might be on penalties as well. So I just think you've got more routes to go with Danny Ings. And um, so, yeah, I do like Ings. I don't think we should disregard Watkins just because they've signed Ings, but also we do have the potential injury for Ollie Watkins. He limped off with a knee injury uh, yeah. last yesterday in the friendly. So worth keeping an eye on that one. I think Ings scored yesterday, didn't he? Didn't he yeah, score Ings, Ings, yeah, Ings scored. It's worth noting that El Ghazi took a penalty with Danny Ings on the pitch yesterday. Yeah. So we think Ings will be on penalties. However, if El Ghazi is on the pitch, which obviously won't be all the time, it could be that El Ghazi is the main penalty taker still, which is worth keeping an eye on. I noticed that there's talk of El Ghazi getting transferred to one of, one of the teams. I can't remember it was. Maybe Holland. One of the teams... Yep. Was trying was trying to buy him. I don't know whether that will go through, but that obviously would clear the picture a little bit more. But uh, yeah, but yeah, I really like this lineup. And the trouble is, every lineup I see from, you know, people within the industry generally is, you know, you look at that and think, yeah, that could win. You know, yeah, uh, it's so difficult. And obviously, you know, it's not just that first draft. It's exactly know, it's how you react throughout the season. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But let's move on to some real life football then. So in terms of the newly promoted teams, how do you reckon they'll get on this season? I watched the friendly with Brentford yesterday and I was a bit disappointed because 
I was only really watching it to uh, see Ivan Tony, um, and obviously yeah. he didn't play. But um, I thought they looked good regardless. Once they got yeah, back. I, I think Brentford. We're all expecting Brentford to sort of do a lead. We can call it. It seems to have, have coined that phrase. We're expecting them to come in, play attacking football, and hopefully impress with that and do enough to stay up. It's worth noting that I don't think they're as well drilled as Leeds. I don't think they're necessarily as attacking as Leeds. Um, so I don't expect them to do as well, but I do expect them to attack and to stay up. And I think they'll play some exciting football. So I'd probably say Brentford maybe 14th, 15th. I think they'll stay up, but we're not probably expecting top half of the table. Um, I think Watford will defend really, really well. I think they'll struggle, but I think they'll stay up. So they only conceded 30 goals last season in 46 matches, which is absolutely incredible. But obviously that's that's the championship and this is the Premier League. So I think they'll still defend well. They will keep some clean sheets. I do worry about them going forward. Um, if, if Ismail Assar is injured or they can't seem to find that striker that performs well in the Prem, they could struggle. So I'd probably say like 16th, 17th for Watford. Um, Norwich are the team that I'm really, really worried about. And the reason for that is they performed so well in the championship, but they essentially relied on possession-based football. So they kept a lot of the football, they passed it around and they waited mm -hmm. for the championship defences to tire or make mistakes. And they just won't hold on to the ball that much in the Premier League. The, the level of quality of pressing and also the ability of the opposition to keep the ball. I can't see Norwich keeping more than 50% in a lot of their possession in a lot of their games. So if they're not holding on to the ball like they were last season, how are they going to adapt to that? Are they going to start defending and dropping deep? Are they going to play a high press? Have they got a plan for when they can't keep the ball? I'm sure they've been working on that, but it might take a little bit of adaptation. So if I had to predict, I'd say Watford maybe staying up, maybe going down. I think Brentford should be fine, but not a crazy season. And I think Norwich will probably finish smack bang bottom or 19th. Um, although I'm, I'm happy if they want to surprise me, but yeah, I can't see it. Yeah, it's tough, isn't it? I mean, obviously they did well last season, bouncing back up, but then two of their best players from last season, Oleskip yeah, exactly. and uh, Buendia, obviously left the club. Um, their replacement is uh, Milan, Rash is it Rashida or Rashida or something like that? Rashika, but, yeah. Rashika, yeah, yeah who, I, who I've watched a bit in the Bundesliga and he is quite a good player, but, you know, it can take a bit of time to sort of adjust to the pace of the Premier League. And um, But if he does get going, he is a quality player and he can sort of, you know, make the space for people like uh, Pookie to finish. But yeah, exactly. yeah, I think you're probably right. I think 19th, 20th. But um, so who, who do you think is getting relegated this season then? So you, Norwich will have down as one. Southampton, obviously, you've mentioned um who's the other team or who who else do you think is in that sort of area see i had newcastle in here a lot of, i did a few predictions earlier in like the pre-season i had newcastle but they just wilson looks relatively fit considering he's constantly getting injured uh, saint maximan is now back getting minutes they've just signed willock which is a statement of intent i think 20 25 million to spend on a player that shows that they want to stay up and they're going to fight for it and it's an attacker as well it's not like they've spent that money on a defender um I'm I'm actually confident Newcastle will stay up if they manage to keep those three players fit now. So I, I suppose the team never seemed to go down, but always threatened to is Burnley. And I do worry that they might not have strengthened enough in the transfer market. And they've sort of stagnated for a while now. Mm. And whilst I rate Sean Dyche very, very much, and I like the fact that they started playing attacking football towards the back end of the season. Like Chris Wood's stats were absolutely incredible. He was top for XG for, for large parts of the back end of the season. And they started scoring a lot of goals. I do worry that if they can't carry on scoring goals at that rate, their defence appears to have, have worsened over the last season and a half. I, I do worry that if they stop scoring goals and their defence still looks weaker, then they, they could struggle. So if I had to guess, I'd probably say Norwich, Southampton and Burnley. 
Yeah, I think Chris Wood, obviously, he was at the Olympics, wasn't he? So I'm not sure. I haven't looked at, uh, I haven't really followed Burnley's friendlies, but um, I'd be surprised if he's in the starting line at next weekend. But um, yeah, there's a small chance, but either way, Chris Wood is a great striker, but relying on him for the entire season, I think with Vidra and Rodriguez and Barnes, one of them needs to step up and start scoring a lot of goals alongside him because if Wood gets injured or he's trying to do everything by himself, it's going to be tough. Um, It's good that they look like they're going to hang on to McNeil because he's their main creative threat. Uh, Obviously, Josh Brownhill looks like he's improving uh, year by year, which is great. They do have enough quality there, but it's a very thin squad. And I do worry that they sometimes don't feel like they have a plan B. And Sean Dyche has performed miracles for a few seasons now. Mm. Um, And I know they finished really highly a few seasons back now, but it just seems to be slowly going downhill. So I wouldn't be surprised if Burnley finished 15th, 16th and stay up again. They they have the ability to. But if I had to guess right now, I'd say Burnley looked like they might be in trouble this season. Cool. So I think that's all the teams that are potentially in the danger zone. Yeah. Um, I I completely agree with you. I I can't think of anybody outside of those that... um, Crystal Palace are an interesting one. They've actually done reasonably well in pre-season from the games that I've seen. Um, it'd be interesting when the season gets going. Obviously, they're not going to, they're going to be out without Esri for quite a while. I think he did his Achilles. It wasn't that far from the end of the season, was it? So probably going to be Christmas time before we see him again. Uh, yeah. If Zaha doesn't produce the goals, I think they could struggle, but... I, th- I think with the new manager bounce, the the youth coming through, the signing of Elise, Zaha, Benteke, I think they've got enough in them. Um, I can't remember the name of him. They've signed a new centre-back as well. So I think they've made the right acquisitions. They've, it's, again, a statement of intent that they're going to... like Because what they could do, they could hire Vieira, accept relegation, and start rebuilding from the bottom. But they've made a few good key signings. So I think I think they'll have enough. It will just be up to Vieira and his management and leadership style. Whether it, I think they'll start well. It's just whether can he maintain that throughout the season with the the youth that he's got and a, a lack of experienced players, I suppose. Yeah. Well, after the last couple of seasons, I think they'll be pretty happy if they start well. But um, yeah. So in terms of who, the EPL, then who's winning it? Is it Man City? I, I, I can't... So- I can't really look past Man City. Uh, at the moment, it looks like Kane isn't going to go to City now and he's staying at Tottenham. That's sort of the latest news. So I don't worry about Man City not having a striker, but I do equally think that to continue to dominate at the top level for many years to come, they are going to need to eventually sign a striker unless they plan on truly developing Torres into a striker, into a false nine, and they, they play him there permanently. Or Jesus starts to really develop, but he doesn't look like he's ever going to do that. Apparently, he wants to leave. So I don't think they'll struggle without a striker this season if they decide not to sign one, but they do need to think about that long term. But I've I've got Man City down to win. Just the the squad depth that they've got, the the acquisitions that they continue to make, I think they should be fine. Even if Chelsea and Man United and Liverpool sign another three players each, I don't think anyone's going to touch them this season, personally. I think it's going to be a lot more competitive this season. I agree with you. I think Man City... I think Jack Grealish is a brilliant player. It wouldn't surprise me at all if he doesn't get huge amounts of game time to start off with. We've seen with managers like Pep and, and Jurgen Klopp as well, that they like to integrate players slowly once they're familiar with systems. And I noticed yes, uh, not yesterday, on Saturday, that Jack Grealish, before he came on, was really busy looking through a folder of looked like endless tactics. Yeah. And you can only imagine what it's like going to a manager like Pep that is really, you know all-encompassing on that side. I imagine he's got a lot of information to absorb before Pep fully trusts him on the pitch, but I think he could be a cracking player for them. But um, who else? So 
is there, is there anybody that's in terms of let's talk about the top four then who else is going to be in the top four so I think I think Chelsea now they've signed Lukaku are probably the closest to City I think they showed towards the back end of the season with with Tuchel that they're close but they probably weren't quite there the main thing was Werner couldn't be relied on and Havertz just isn't a striker and whilst he can perform well in that sort of full nine role again I don't know that Tuchel's comfortable enough to play that formation and develop Havertz into that player. I think Havertz is probably much better off a striker. So the fact that they've gone out and signed Lukaku, um, whatever you think about him, whatever you think about his touch and the way he plays and his style of play, I think getting a proven goal scorer is always going to help your chances. So I think if there's any team that could push Man City all the way, it's probably Chelsea. Um, and then I've got Manchester United in at third. Um I, I, I don't I don't think that's biased I think I think signing Sancho and Varane I think are two key areas that we've been lacking for us a really really long time I think right wing we've got that now plugged for the next decade we've got Greenwood coming through Cavani still looks fit Pogba looks like he's going to stay I, the team just looks significantly stronger than last year and we finished second last year so I, I don't see any reason why we can't go one step further get more points I just expect Man City and Chelsea to continue to improve as well so I've got Manchester United in at third and then I've got Liverpool in at fourth. Um, I just don't think they've got enough squad depth, Liverpool. I don't think they've strengthened for a long time. I wonder if the the Klopp storyline and fairy tale is starting to burn out a little bit. He did seem to not lose the faith of the players a few times last season, but it did look, even, even though they had injuries, it just didn't look like the, the sort of Klopp performances that you'd expect. They weren't pressing as high. They weren't pressing as a team. I do worry slightly about them, but if, if they start the season well and they keep all of their key players fit... Their starting eleven itself is probably in the top two, potentially even the best in the league. That they're, they're key starting eleven. It's just after that, the, the strength in depth just isn't there to compete with the likes of Chelsea and and also um, Man City. And I think Oli's building something quite nice at Manchester United. So I, I, I'm not set on that, but yeah, if I had to guess, I'd say City, Chelsea, United, Liverpool in that order. Well, I hope you're wrong, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I can I completely understand your arguments and. The moment Man, uh, Man United signed Jaden Sancho, I was just, I was really hoping that he was a Liverpool type player that, you know, yep. he had the pace, he had age on his side and FSG has shown that they are willing to sort of pay for those sort of players. Yep. Um, him going to Man United was a real sort of nail. I don't think there was any, ever any sort of particular thought he would go to Liverpool. I was just, you know, wishing, but uh, I think he's a fantastic player and he covers a lot of the you know, the problems going forward on that side that they didn't, yep. they were missing last year. Um, and Varane, I think he's a fantastic defender regardless. You know, I think he's brilliant at the back. And, you know, we've shown, I think if Maguire and him can gel well together, that could be a cracking centre-back uh, partnership as well. Um, yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? I think there's a lot of good teams this season. Um, is there anyone outside of that four that you could see cracking that four, that, uh, cracking that top four this season? I can't see anyone cracking that four. I think I always under underrate Leicester and they always surprise me, but I'm mm. not sure that they'll crack that top four this year. I think last year was their chance and they continue to blow it. They continue to get close. I don't know that they've strengthened their squad enough, although they do have players returning from injury. Daka looks like a great sign-in. I think the key for Brendan Rodgers will be how he deals with Vardy because I don't expect Vardy to continue at the rate he's continuing at. Does he drop Vardy altogether? Does he bring him off on 60 minutes? How does he feel about dropping a legend? At the club so the way he deals with having Ian Acho and Daka on the bench and Vardy starting and rotating the three of them is going to be really important um so I Leicester could uh, two two teams that I think would perform really well and could make it into the top six are Arsenal and Aston Villa 
I think Arsenal were one of the best defences in the league at the back end of the season. I think Saka continues to improve. Emil Smith-Rowe continues to improve. So does Pepe. I think they're a team on the up as opposed to a lot of teams who are on the down. So I could see Arsenal having a really good season. Again, if they start quite well. And Aston Villa have just made so many good acquisitions. And it doesn't look like they're just spending money for the sake of it. It looks like they're spending money in clever areas and signing players that suit their system. So I really like Arsenal and Aston Villa. And I think either of those could do really well. But I don't think, I think the top four is almost set in stone. I'd be really surprised if any of those four teams fall out of the top four this year. I think there'll be maybe a 10 or 15 point gap between fourth and fifth. Um, and I think it'll be sort of teams fighting for fifth, sixth, seventh, West Ham, West Ham Tottenham, Leicester. Aston Villa for likes. Excellent. And who do you think is going to be the top scorer this season? Is it going to be Kane? Um, now Kane doesn't look like he's going to go to City. I'm not so sure that he can recapture that form at Tottenham again um, with Nuno, who's obviously not experienced at managing sort of a, a, an elite team. So I'll, I'll go for Lukaku. I think he's a proven goal scorer. If he gets into that team quickly and, and Tuchel trusts him, which I do, I know he rotates his players, but I think he's going to start Lukaku the, the majority of the minutes and he will get goals. And we so, the boat, yeah. though, Everton, didn't he, before he went to yeah. Man United? So. And even at Man United, when he wasn't rated by anyone, he still scored goals and he scored a lot of goals at Inter and mm -hmm. he scored a lot of goals in the Euros. He is a proven goal scorer and he will get at least 15, 20 goals. It's just whether he can outscore the likes of Salah and Kane. Um, so I'll go with Lukaku as like an outside bet. And you've got to think with, you know, people like Fernandez, Pogba, if he stays, Sancho, Rashford, he's got, you know, going to have a lot of supply of, you know, crosses, through balls or whatever. But um, yeah, it could be a good shout. Sorry, thinking of the wrong team now. So you meant Man United, wouldn't I? But <laughs> he's still got a lot behind him, Pulisic and Havertz and Mel. Yeah. I think. He suits the system and he'll, he'll definitely perform well. For I had him. a picture on my screen of him still at Man, uh, in him in his Man United kit. Yeah. Uh, lost the plot there. But um, okay, so that's everything for this week. Um, anything you want to say? How can people find you? Uh, yeah, I've got links everywhere and different things that I'm doing. But if you head over to my Twitter, that's sort of the best place where I, I chat and keep everyone updated on different fantasy football and yeah, all the things that I've got planned for the upcoming season. So it's just FPL underscore underscore Raptor on Twitter. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Um, it's been brilliant learning a little bit more about you and a little bit uh, about the stats that you think we should be using next season. Uh, so without further ado, I'll be out of here. Speak to you soon. Bye.